if you do have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me to Proverbs chapter 13. Proverbs chapter 13. We're finally coming to the end of our series through Proverbs, and we're focusing this morning upon what ought to be the focus of Proverbs, the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week we saw uh, that Proverbs puts before us two gates, two ways, and two destinies. Well, this morning uh, we will see the one who speaks to us in the book of Proverbs, and we will see the one who guides us on those paths, on the way of wisdom. Uh, to start us off this morning, we're going to just look at Proverbs 30 and the oracle of Agar, the first five, first four verses. Uh, you'll notice in verse 1 uh, that Agar doesn't just give us a series of Proverbs, he actually gives us an oracle. Uh, that's a prophetic message that is given here that I would suggest is given to affect our interpretation of wisdom and the pursuit of wisdom. Now to see why I say that, let's read our text and we'll ask the Lord for his help. This is God's word, Proverbs chapter 30, verse 1 to 4. The words of Agar, son of Jacob, the oracle. The man declares, I'm weary, O God. I'm weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I'm too stupid to be a man. I've not the understanding of a man. I've not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. Only so far in the reading of God's word may reform our lives to achieve. Let's pray again. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we know that it is true. We know that it guides us to the truth. And it guides us particularly to know you. And so our prayer this morning really is that we would see you, that our hearts would be enlarged for you, to worship you, to enjoy you, to glorify you. And so would you not help us even now, in the midst of our own weaknesses, our own struggles, our own waywardness, perhaps our thoughts tending to wander away, would you not focus them all upon you, so that you would be uh, preeminent now, we pray. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. As you can tell from the title of the sermon series, uh, our position is that the book of Proverbs guides us and sets before us the way of wisdom. That is, Proverbs shows us how to live wisely, whether it's with our speech or our work or our finances, whether it's with our friends, our spouses, our children, in our decision-making, Proverbs shows us how to live, how to live life well, how to live life wisely, skillfully, in a way that glorifies God. You see, Proverbs guides us in the way of wisdom, a way that leads to righteousness and blessing and life. But realize also that Proverbs will crush your soul. 
proverbs will discourage you and dishearten you. How so? Because your friends tell me who here has lived life skillfully and wisely. Who here has walked perfectly in the way of wisdom. Who here has applied all of these principles perfectly in all of life. But let's be honest, no one has. As I shared at the first sermon when we started this year, one of my favorite preachers preached through this, and I listened to it twice. Yet even after he preached, he fell into serious disqualifying sin. See, it's not just—it's not enough to just know about this book and know its truths. More is needed. See, just as the law shows us how we failed to obey God, Proverbs shows us how often we failed to be wise. And that's something that Agar seemingly comes to realize. He starts by confessing, verse 1, I am weary, O God, I am worn out. The question is, is though, why? Why is he worn out? Why is he weary? Well, apparently, he's weary and worn out in his attempts to live wisely, in his attempts to, to walk in God's ways. How do we know that? Look how he carries on. Verse 2. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom. Nor have I the knowledge of the Holy One. See, Agar is weary and worn out because in and of himself, he has failed to grow in wisdom. He has failed to mature in the knowledge of God. Ecclesiastes 7.23 beautifully describes Agar's attempt at wisdom. All this, Ecclesiastes says, I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise. But it was far from me. Uh, that would be an apt description of Agor's conclusion at his attempt to be wise. And dear friends, that ought to be our conclusion. If we, in and by ourselves, try to keep all that Proverbs commands, if we, by our own abilities, try to apply all of these principles, uh, the book of Proverbs will wear us out. And realize Agar's prophetic message is teaching us how to approach wisdom, how to pursue wisdom, which is namely that we need help beyond ourselves. We need someone else to guide us down the way of wisdom. Notice the rhetorical questions in verse 4. He asks five questions. The first four really ask the who question. Who is truly wise? He says, who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in its fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established the ends of the earth? And the answer to those questions is obvious, isn't it? It's not Agar. It's not you. It's not me. No, it's God. God has done all of this. God has created all things. God is the one who governs all things. He's the one who, who, who moves all things. And therefore, by implication, God is alone the one who is wise. 
but, but there's more. Notice the fifth rhetorical question with its two parts. Aegon, no, not just ask the who question, you ask the what question. What is his name? What is the name of this person who does all of these things? What is the name of the one who is all-powerful and therefore all-wise? As John Kitchen points out in the Hebrew mind, to know a person's name is to, to know them personally. He says, Agar longs not just to examine the works of God, which you see in the first four questions, but to know God himself. And hearing, dear friends, is the remedy to our problem. How can we walk in the way of wisdom without becoming weary and worn out? Only, only if we know God personally. Only if He is our God who, who personally leads us down this path. But, but the question still remains. How can we know this God? How, how does He lead us? How does He personally know us and, and personally lead us? Well, it's through His Son. It's through the Son that God is known. It's through the Son that he, he leads us. Just look how that verse 5 ends. What is His name and what is His Son's name? Is he contrary to what some think the Son here isn't the law? Now, although the law reveals things about God, the law cannot guarantee knowledge of God. And the Son isn't Israel. Although they were called God's firstborn Son, many in ancient and modern Israel simply do not know God. And so who is the Son? Surely we know. It's Jesus, the, the eternal Son of God, who is the image of the invisible God. Remember what Jesus says, Matthew eleven twenty seven: All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. See, just as a son is the image and likeness of his father, so Jesus is the image of the invisible God who alone makes the Father known. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Who is this God at the Father's side? It's the Son of God who was with God and who became flesh, who is the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so, dear friends, dear church, to cut a long introduction short, here is how we ought to walk in the ways of wisdom. We need to walk in the ways of wisdom with Jesus. It is in Him that God is known. It's in Him that God leads us. And I'm laying my theological cards on the table. Proverbs is all about Christ. Yes, it's about principles for wise living, but these principles point to Jesus. He's the only one who's kept these principles. And therefore, He's the only one who's able to lead us in this way. Uh, to prove all of this and apply all of this, 
I want us to see three ways in which Proverbs reveals Jesus. We see Jesus' person, work, and heart in Proverbs. Firstly, notice his person. Notice his person. In, in Proverbs 8, 22 to 31, we find one of the high points of Proverbs. Uh, here is a, a figurative, poetic poem where we see Lady Wisdom described. And she's describing transcendent language that, that goes beyond all that we can even understand. If you have your Bibles, please turn there. Notice what, what Lady Wisdom says. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth, when there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the earth, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his commandment, when he marked out the foundation of the earth, then I was beside him. Like a master workman, I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him, always rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. And now, contrary to, to modern commentators, I stand with the ancient church, and perhaps today I would be in the minority, but I stand with the ancient church that sees this chapter and wisdom as being about Jesus. It's a picture of who he is. It's describing things that are true of him. Yes, we see your wisdom being personified as a lady, but that's a poetic, figurative uh, device. That's language that, that points to truth beyond itself. That's what figurative language does. It's imagery, by definition, points to truths beyond itself. I think of that this way. The Bible calls God our rock. Is he our rock? Is he literally a rock? No, no, that imagery points to truths that he is dependable, that he is strong, he is trustworthy. And so it is with Lady Wisdom here. Here is poetic and figurative language that, that points to realities beyond itself, realities that describe Jesus. See, wisdom here is a type and a shadow of Christ. And, and what do we learn of Jesus here? What do we learn about his person and his work? I may suggest to you, here we learn the doctrine of eternal generation. I told Bronwyn, this is what I'm going to preach on, and her first response was, poor church. <laughs> Patience, please. What is eternal generation? Well, it's an orthodox doctrine that Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of the Father. And to see this, I want you to see three points from this particular text. First, I want you to see that wisdom is from God. Notice the verbs in verse 22 to 26. Four verbs are used. The Lord possessed me. 
I was set up, and twice wisdom says, I was brought forth. Now, I'm sad to say that many translations get this wrong. The NET, the NRSV, the NLT, the GNT, even the paraphrase, the message, all of them, in my opinion, get this wrong. The NET, for example, says in verse 22, the Lord created me. And the heretics, the Arians, and the Jehovah's Witnesses say, Amen. Now, to argue their case, they would say this, that the Hebrew word there for create or possessed is the word kana. In the majority of cases, it means to acquire, it means to get, it means to buy. But sometimes it also means, they say, to create. And you know what? They're right. In ancient texts and in the Old Testament, there are examples of kana being translated as create. But here's why they are still wrong. In those examples and in the context of those examples, the idea behind this word isn't creation, actually it's procreation. And take a few examples to illustrate this. Genesis 4.1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten in Cana a man with the help of the Lord. Did Eve create Cain? No, no, she begot him. She gave birth to him. Or Deuteronomy 32.6. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is he not your father who created you, Cana? And the idea is this. God not just created his people, but he's their father. He, he begets them as his own. Or Psalm 139 verse 13. For you formed, Kenar, my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. See, that word is being used. You're not referring to, to mere creation, but being formed, being begotten, being born. As you see, there's an important distinction between creation and procreation. In creation, you make something from something else. You take a tree and you make something else. You make furniture. It's not you. It's separate from you. In, in procreation, you, you beget something from yourself. You look at my daughter, Sione, and you see her mother. She looks just like a mother. And when she's naughty, then she looks like me. <laughs> the point to get is this. In Proverbs 8... God doesn't somehow create wisdom. If he creates it, then at some time he didn't have it. No, no, the point of Proverbs 8 is that wisdom is begotten of God. God has always been wise and wisdom is from him. And that's what the other verbs actually say. When wisdom says, I was set up, the idea there, the root there speaks of I was poured out from God. When wisdom says, I was brought forth, the idea is this, God begets me. See, wisdom is from God and therefore shares God's nature. Uh, Walke says it this way, wisdom comes from God's essential being, which means wisdom is as authoritative and divine as God is. And realize all of these things are describing truths of Jesus. Uh, John 1.14, 1, 
And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, just like wisdom, Jesus is, is begotten of the Father. Because He's from the Father, He has the nature of the Father. And because He has the nature of the Father, He can reveal the Father's glory. Uh, Hebrews says it this way, doesn't it? He's the radiance of the glory of God. How can that be? Because he's the exact imprint of his nature. So wisdom is, is from God. But note, secondly, wisdom is eternally with God. When was wisdom begotten? At some point in time? No, he was begotten in eternity. And that's what you see in verse 24 to 31, before the depths of the earth and before the heights of the heavens, before the creation of all things, which includes time, wisdom was already there, eternally with God. See, there's a distinction between that which is created and that which is uncreated. And so when wisdom is described as being before creation, in fact being described as God's master workman who helps in the creation, then wisdom doesn't belong in that category. No, it belongs in the uncreated category. Wisdom was eternally with God. There was never a time where wisdom was not. And again, this is a reality that we see in the Lord Jesus Christ. John 1, verse 1 to 3, in the beginning, right? In the beginning, before all things were made, was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. See, before the beginning, before all created things, Jesus, the wisdom of God, was eternally with God. God. But there's more. Not only is wisdom from God, not only is wisdom eternally with God, but wisdom and God delighted in one another. Just look at verse 30. What a beautiful verse. I was with him, or I was beside him like a master workman. I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always. Uh, what's that communicating? Well, fundamentally it means this. Although there is one God, this one God is not alone. This God has always existed and enjoyed intimate, personal, delightful relationship. Uh, we get a glimpse of this in Genesis 1.26, right? Then God said, let us make man in our image. Who's the athlete? Is it the angels? Or are you made in the image of an angel? No, you're made in the image of God. See, within the one God, there are three divine persons, Father, Son, Spirit. There's plurality. There's, there's a plenitude of life in this God. Recall Jesus' prayer, John 17, 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you. Before the world existed. Now, what's the point of all of this? 
In Proverbs 8.22 and onwards, we are given insights into the person of Jesus. Who is he? He is the wisdom of God, eternally begotten from God. And one application that this of this we have to make is simply this. These truths are essential to our faith. Jesus being the real, eternal Son of God from the Father is at the core of our faith. Deny these truths and you deny the faith. Since 325 AD, Christians have confessed the Nicene Creed, which affirms this. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through whom all things were made. This is the faith we confess but not just is it a faith, faith we confess, it's a faith we delight in. This is the application I really want to make this morning. When we understand who Jesus is, then Jesus becomes the object of our delight. See this idea that Jesus is this eternally begotten Son from the Father is, to be quite honest, a mystery. I can't wrap my brain around this. I can't fully understand it. It's above me. It's beyond me. It's above and beyond us. Yet it's still a mystery that ought to inflame our affection. It's still a mystery that ought to revive our wonder. God isn't just a bigger version of us. He's different from us. He's bigger than us. He's transcendent over us. And only this God who has made us can satisfy us. Consider a few verses in Proverbs. Proverbs 2.10 For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. This wisdom brings pleasantness. Proverbs 8.19 My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. Proverbs 8.34-35 Blessed is the one who listens to me, wisdom says, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my door, whoever finds me finds life. And the lesson for us to learn, no one is more pleasing, no one is more desirable than Jesus. Begotten from the Father before all ages, there is no greater object of delight to be had. Now, every now and then you hear people say something like this. I will never believe in a God who allows suffering. I will never believe in a God who brings trouble in my life, robbing me of my desires, my wants, my longings. Or oh, they'll be a bit more intellectual. They'll say, I will never believe in a God that I can't make sense of. Virgin birth, resurrection, eternal generation. When people think that way, they fail to see that God is a mystery beyond us who is greater than us. He doesn't exist to be our lapdog. He doesn't exist to be put on trial by us and our puny minds. No, He doesn't exist for us. We exist for Him. And we are here to glorify Him and enjoy Him. 
And, and perhaps that's the problem with some here today. Until your delight is in the God who is bigger than you, you will remain unsatisfied. You will remain unfulfilled because you're filling your heart and your mind with things that are just too small. I think of it this way. Hilary of Poitiers, a early church father, he pointed out that if the beauty of the universe that we can see and perceive, if that beauty fills us with delight, if we see the mountains and the skies and the stars and the oceans, we see all those things and they cause us delight, then the nature of Him who created these things, the, the God we cannot fully perceive, how much more so is He not delightful? How much more so is he far greater than we can even think or imagine? See, referring to Jesus as the eternally begotten God, Hillary said this, His is a greatness too vast for our comprehension, but not for our faith. And I would add, not for our delight. Some of you are going down to the ocean this December. Enjoy it. You can't wrap your arms around it, right? But you can jump in and enjoy it. And so it is with this God. We cannot grasp Him. We cannot fully put Him on trial and understand Him. But we can enjoy Him. That should be our desire. Now, I need to move on. There's two more points. I'll be briefer with these two. The second thing to note from Jesus in Proverbs is his work. Is his work. Throughout Proverbs, we have glimpses of, of what Jesus, the wisdom of God, does. He creates, he sanctifies, he, he brings blessing. But the, the thing we really need to focus on uh, that deserves our attention is his work of redemption. Now, if you read Proverbs very carefully, you will notice that it puts before us a huge dilemma. Uh, listen to a few Proverbs. Proverbs 11:19. Whoever is steadfast in righteousness will live, but he who pursues evil will die. Or Proverbs 12:22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. In other words, those who are steadfast and faithful, steadfast and faithful in their righteousness before God, they will live and they will be God's delight. Yet those who aren't, those who fail in steadfastness and faithfulness, those who display no covenant loyalty to God and others, they, these Proverbs tell us, are an abomination and they will perish. See, steadfastness and faithfulness are vitally important. That's why Proverbs 3, verse 3 says this, Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. In fact, listen to Proverbs 16, verse 6. Notice how important steadfast love and faithfulness is. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Not only is steadfast love and faithfulness synonymous with the fear of God, but somehow steadfast love and faithfulness atones for sin. Now, where is the dilemma, you ask? Well, according to Proverbs, no one 
is steadfast in love and faithfulness. Uh, listen to Proverbs 20, verse 6. Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man, who can find? Uh, the implied answer here is, there is none. None is steadfast. None is faithful. None is righteous. And because we are unrighteous, we cannot atone for ourselves. Verse 9 says, a few verses later, makes it clear. Who can say, I have made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. And the answer again is, no one. There is our dilemma. We've sinned and we cannot save ourselves from our sin. We've, we've become unrighteous and we cannot cleanse ourselves from our unrighteousness. Dear, dear friends, that's your dilemma, that's my dilemma. And what hope do we have? Well, only in the God who abounds with steadfast love and faithfulness, Exodus 34. Only in the God who so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. I know I share this verse often, but it's so beautiful. 1 John 14, in this is love. Not that we have loved Him, not that we have shown steadfast love and faithfulness, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. Think about it for a second. The one who enjoyed infinite delight with the Father entered into our realm. He left the throne of glory for the shame of a cross and He bore the unimaginable wrath of His Father. Why? The nice thing it says, for us and our salvation. Remember what Paul said, 1 Corinthians 1, 24, 30. He recalls that Jesus is the power of God and the wisdom of, of God who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Praise be to God that He has not left us in the folly of our sin. He has provided a Savior for us. See, the dilemma of Proverbs points us to Jesus and the necessity of His work of salvation. If it were not for Jesus, Proverbs and all that it teaches us would crush us. What's the application of this for us? Well, when we understand who Jesus is and what He's done, then Jesus becomes not just the object of our delight, He becomes the object of our devotion. As Paul says, Jesus becomes to us not just redemption, He, he becomes to us wisdom and righteousness and, and sanctification, which means that if you want to walk in wisdom, if you want to grow in righteousness before God, if you want to become more sanctified in godliness, you need to be devoted to Jesus. You need to follow Him more and more so that He would lead you to the paths of righteousness and joy and wisdom. Uh, this devotion is seen a few places in Proverbs. Proverbs 16, verse 17. The way of the upright turns away from evil. Whoever guards his way preserves his life. Uh, 17, 24. The discerning sets his face towards wisdom. But the eyes of the fool are on the ends of the earth. 
or 21, 29, a wicked man puts on a bold face, but the upright gives thought to his ways. 23, 19, hear my son, be wise, direct your heart in the way. What are these problems calling for? They're calling for devotion. They're calling for a devotion that keeps away from sin and evil and worldliness, a devotion that is careful and mindful to obey God, a, a devotion that follows Jesus with the heart. Not just outward signs, not just outward appearances for others' sake, but a heart that seeks after Him. Proverbs 16.20 says this, Whoever gives thought to the word will discover good, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. That's certainly true of Jesus, the word of God. Give thought to him, trust in him, because in him you discover goodness, and in him there is blessing. And so he needs to be the object of your devotion. Think about it. Proverbs promises life if you find wisdom. Proverbs 8.35. Yet Jesus brings eternal life. He's the resurrection and the life. For 2 Timothy 1.10. Proverbs exhorts us to, to write the wis wisdom on our hearts. Yet Jesus is the one who does it through his spirit. 2 Corinthians 3.3. 3. Proverbs calls us to, to walk in wisdom. Yet Jesus empowers us to do this through the spirit. Romans 8.2-4. Proverbs promises a satisfying feast. Yet Jesus actually delivers the bread of life that does not lead us to hunger or thirst. On and on we could go, but the point remains, Jesus is essential for walking in the ways of wisdom. If you read the New Testament, you see that not only did Jesus grow in wisdom, Luke 2, 52, but Jesus' wisdom is far greater than Solomon's. Luke 11.31 And therefore, who better to lead you here? Who better to guide you and guard you and, and lead you to wisdom? Remember what Paul says, two, uh, Colossians 2 verse 3, In Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and therefore, verse 7, walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him. And so the question really for us is this, in our Christianity, in our religiosity, in our worship, in all the things we do day to day in church, in family, in the workplace, are we doing these things with faith and devotion in Jesus? Or are we doing all of these things trusting in ourselves, trusting in our sufficiency, our talents, our abilities? Or ask differently, do you have a personal relationship with this Jesus? Will you listen to Him? Will you follow Him? Will you wait upon Him to lead you? Do you know what that even means, what that looks like? To, to know Him. Jesus would say in Proverbs 8.34, Blessed is the one who listens to me watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors, for whoever finds me finds life. See, Proverbs isn't just about being dedicated to wise principles. No, it's all about devotion to a wise person, the, G the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who created us, the one who redeems us, and the only one who can lead us in wisdom.
Uh, there's an old hymn that wonderfully describes this devotion. Jesus, my truth, my way, my sure unerring light, on thee my feeble soul I stay, which thou wilt lead aright. My wisdom and my guide, my counselor thou art, oh, never let me leave thy side or from thy paths depart. See, if Jesus is the wisdom of God, dear friends, be devoted to him. Let him lead you. Let him be your devotion. Finally and thirdly, I want you to see that in Proverbs we see not just Jesus' person and his work, we see his heart. We see his heart. Not only do we encounter his person and work, but we really see a glimpse into his affections, his desires, his heart, because he calls out to you. He calls out to us. You see this in the first part, in the last part of of chapter 8, verse 1 to 6, he says this, Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates, in front of the town, at the entrance of the portal, she cries out, To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Here for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. Verse 10, take my instruction instead of silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you desire cannot compare with her. 32 to 36, and now, O sons, listen to me, wisdom says, blessed are those who keep my way, hear instruction, be wise, do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me. See, throughout Proverbs, again and again, wisdom calls. Wisdom calls to you and me to find life and joy. And why does wisdom call out to you? Recall Proverbs 8, 30 to 31 I was daily his delight, wisdom says, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Now think about that for a second. Think of that image. The wisdom of God who is eternally with God not only delights in God, but he delights in us. He delights in us so much so that He becomes one of us. And even when we sin, even when we fall short, He still delights in us and calls us to Himself. He says, come to me and live. That's perhaps what some of you need to hear this morning. Perhaps you've wandered away foolishly in your rebellion, in your sin, Perhaps you've sinned so grievously as you walked in this world, satisfying satisfying yourself with it. Perhaps you've become weary and worn out with all your religious activity. Well, dear friends, wisdom, Jesus calls you, He invites you. He invites you to find your rest in Him. Do not labor in your own strength. Do not labor for that which does not satisfy He says, come to me. 
Again, Proverbs 9, 1 to 5, wisdom invites us to come and eat at its feast. Yet, in a far greater way, Jesus invites us in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Or remember that well-worn promise, Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 29, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Dear friends, see Jesus' heart for you. See his desire. He offers you rest. And so come to him with faith. Believe upon him. Trust in him as that eternal wisdom from God who is drawn near to save you. Yes, you. I listen to this assurance that he gives. Proverbs 8, 17. I love those who love me and those who diligently seek me, find me. Dear friends, what's stopping you this morning from finding Jesus? What's that thing that's keeping you from wisdom? What's that thing that's, that's distracting you from finding life and blessing? In, in the words of Isaiah, dear friends, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on you. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, if you do not know this God, believe upon the wisdom who has become incarnate. Believe upon Jesus. Now, if you're a follower here, what's the application for you? Well, it's simply this. When you understand how Jesus delights in us, then he becomes the subject of our declaration. Dear believers, heed this exhortation from Proverbs. Proverbs 24, 11, Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to slaughter. Dear friends, are you doing that? Are we rescuing those around us on the pathway to death? Are we pointing them to life in Jesus? Or Proverbs 13, 14, the teaching of the wise is a fountain of life that one may turn from the snares of death. Ask yourself, is, are your words fountains of life because they point to life? That they call people to believe in Jesus? Or Proverbs eleven thirty, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life and whoever captures souls is wise. Oh, for us to be wise because we're capturing souls for Christ. See, everyone here, every single one of us has an eternal soul. Your family members, your friends, your colleagues, the person at spa this afternoon, everyone has an eternal soul. And if that soul is the void of Christ, it will perish. And so therefore, let our lives and our lips attest to the wisdom of God who has come down to man to save us. Let our lives, let our lips boldly declare that Jesus is the wisdom that our souls need. See, as the eternally begotten wisdom of God, the Son alone is able to lead us down to the path of wisdom 
And surely if we know his name, we will make known his name. Uh, See, so we've come to the end of our book, our series on Proverbs, but I hope that this is actually just the start. We need to read through this book. We need to go over these sermons. We need to meditate upon these Proverbs. And we need to do this all asking Jesus to help us. So that we would be wise as we walk in wisdom. As we declare the, the manifold wonder and blessings of our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your wisdom. Thankful for your grace. Thankful for your love. Thankful that before the foundations of this world, in the intertenitarian relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit, you decide to set a plan in motion to, to create us in your image. And regardless of our sin and our rebellion, you set a plan of redemption to save us. You covenanted as Father, Son, and Spirit to, to redeem us so that we would know you, that we'd be filled with you, that we would glorify you and enjoy you. And so I pray this morning, dear Lord, that these things that we've discussed this morning would not just be cold doctrine, truth about you, but truths that lead us to you, that warm our affections, that stir up our all of you, that remind us again that, that we are ants in comparison to you. Yet you care for us, you delight in us, you love us. You've not been content to leave us in our sin. And so we pray even this morning, would you not draw near to those who would be saved? Would you not... Help us see you as a personal God. Help us see Christ as a personal Savior. To know your Spirit personally working in our hearts. All for your glory. Would you not do this, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.